Every search you make, every click you take, they'll be watching you. Tired of companies like Google and Facebook watching everything you do online? There's actually a simple solution. DuckDuckGo. It's an all-in-one privacy app with a built-in private search engine, web browser, one-click data clearing, email protection, and more. All for free. Download the app today and get the most comprehensive privacy protection with the push of a button. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hello, everyone. This is Rosie Tran, and welcome to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report sponsored by our friends at DuckDuckGo. You may have heard my voice at the end of every episode on Weibo.tv. I'm the one asking you to leave a review. Which, by the way, I hope you've done, right? You've left us a review? Okay, great. Unless you're lying. <clears throat> well, I'm a lot more than a voice. I'm also Weibo.tv's intrepid reporter, and over the course of this miniseries, I'm going to share with you short, actionable tips you can use to protect your privacy. These tips were sourced by our fearless leader, he really hates when we call him that, BJ Mendelson. BJ, for those of you who may not know, is the author of the book Privacy and How We Get It Back, a book that was published in the before times. This means before COVID. BJ is currently writing a sequel called How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So everything we're going to hear in this miniseries is the most up-to-date information he's researched, bringing us into 2023 and beyond. Throughout the series, you're also going to hear from some special guests and experts in the information security field. You hear that sound? That means it's time for today's privacy tip. Glass holes. If we're not careful, they could soon be as far as the eye can see. So this week, BJ talks with Britton Heller, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and an affiliate at the Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center. BJ and Britton discuss the privacy and security issues concerning augmented reality, virtual reality, and other parts of the metaverse. Now, don't get us wrong. We're all excited here at the show about what augmented and virtual reality can offer. But as you might have guessed, there are a lot of security and privacy concerns, particularly about the data collected through head-mounted displays, which are used for both AR, VR, and sex, as seen in the film Demolition Man. That's why we're excited to share this interview with you, because we don't want any more glass holes. We want to help build a metaverse that's accessible to everyone. Now, some of you may not remember the glass holes, so to quickly recap, Glass holes were entitled white guys. Ones walking around with a computer on their face and taking pictures and videos of everything around them. In 2023, that might sound quaint, especially given that we all have smartphones and high-speed mobile internet access now. But there's still some friction involved in taking out your phone and filming someone. To be clear, you shouldn't do that. People are not content. In 2023, we hope you'll join us and not film or photograph strangers as a general practice. That is, unless they're doing something really funny and then only if you get their permission to share or post that video. But taking photos and videos with your glasses is a bit more problematic. That's because doing so is far more subtle, leaving people unaware you're recording them. That's how we got the term glass hole in the first place. That brings us to this week's tip. Don't be a glass hole. I'm joking, but seriously, don't. Actually, our tip this week is not a tip at all, but a book recommendation. That's right, we want you to read a book. You know, those heavy things that you use to kill spiders? But we promise this isn't just homework. If you apply the lessons from this book, it could change your life. No, the book we're recommending is not The Secret. It's called Nonviolent Communication, and it was written by Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, a psychologist and founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. I actually recommended this book to BJ a while back. And since the return of The Glass Hole is inevitable, 
he and I feel Dr. Rosenberg's book will be helpful. That's because we're all, as a society, going to need to get better at having difficult conversations with strangers. This includes conversations with subjects like, hey jackass, stop filming me with your glasses, language Marshall Rosenberg clearly would have approved of. So go check out Nonviolent Communication. We hope you familiarize yourself with Dr. Rosenberg's advice, especially the parts on how to calmly confront someone who's doing something you don't like. Because if you haven't had that conversation yet in your life, we promise that you will. So we're all going to need to do our part. Now let's get to this week's interview. Hi, Brittany. Thank you so much for joining us today on today's show. Would you be so kind as to take a moment to introduce yourself? Hi there. My name is Brittany Heller. My pronouns are she, her. I am currently a, an affiliate at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And uh, I just wanted to, before we dive in, uh, Sue, since you have worked as an attorney, um, nothing that we talk about here should be construed as legal advice for people listening at home. <laughs> just Correct. Want to make sure. Yeah, just make sure we get this out there. So, of course, that being said, um, I have to first ask you about Smell-O-Vision. <laughs> Smell-O-Vision is remarkable. I, I hosted a conference on the metaverse and how existing law applies to extended reality about a week ago at Stanford um, and we got to go to the virtual human interaction lab. They have a sprung floor, so you can get haptics like the, the earth shaking with an earthquake. And we got to try Smell-O-Vision. Smell-O-Vision, uh, you put on the VR headset, you're looking at a campfire, you can hear it crackle, you can see the, see the flames dance, and suddenly you can smell the burning wood and the smoke. You, you also are able to put a marshmallow on a stick and you can add toasting marshmallow to the mix. <laughs> really <laughs> remarkable. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big XR VR person. And so uh, I had to ask about that because I, I've, there's a book that the Stanford uh, Virtual Reality Lab put out a couple of years ago that's just terrific. Um, but let me, let me ask you, like, just going right into it. You know, we, we think uh, Apple might be rolling out their glasses finally uh, this year. And so there's definitely some questions about privacy and safety with with XR and, and things like the glasses. Um, could you touch a little bit on just some of the issues involved with things like eye tracking and head movement? Eye tracking and head movement are, are what differentiate XR hardware from your laptop or your phone. There have been studies at Stanford that show that with 20 minutes of recorded movement, you can be as uniquely identified as if um, with XR footage, as uniquely identified as you would be by your fingerprint. Oh, wow. So it's, it, it, it kind of takes existing biometrics law and pushes it to the edge. I've done some studies uh, as a fellow at Harvard Kennedy School and beyond where I, I basically detailed all of the information that you can get from eye tracking. And these are things like whether or not you're telling the truth, whether or not you are sexually attracted to the person that you're looking at, and whether or not you show preclinical signs of of ailments like ADHD, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, or Huntington's, and these are um, and autism actually in some cases. And these are things you may not know about yourself, or your doctor may not know about you yet. And it brings to brings up to me issues of consent. 
the type of information you need to make XR hardware work is it, it has these the digital exhaust can give you very very private information and biometrics law is centered around protecting your identity personal identifying information i argue that we really need to think about the information that comes out of xr and try to use it to protect our mental privacy so taking biometrics law and pushing the legal understanding of it to new concepts of um, of digital rights would you would this all fall under the category of uh neuro rights is that sort of the the catch-all term for for things like this yeah that was developed by a couple researchers just uh i, I think like around the same time i've heard mental privacy in um in other human rights contexts but they're they're pretty similar and so uh, like i'm fascinated by this because i we had the bioethicist uh, from NYU, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, uh, talking about how, you know, like HIPAA <laughs> does not protect you at all. Correct. Uh, right. With, with all the information that's being collected. And then now we're adding things that could tell you whether or not you're sexually attracted to someone or so you've got uh, ADHD. It, it seems, it, it, how how prepared do you think we are for this discussion as as a country? I think we're woefully unprepared. As long as I am on panels that start with "What is the metaverse?" <laughs> right. I'm, I'm less confident that, that we are ready to talk about the the new type of challenges that come out of spatial computing. Yeah, and so let me ask you a little bit about um, governance in the metaverse. And you know, right now Facebook is is trying to own it, and um, just my personal opinion, I hope they lose on that front. But you know. It, Right now, there's a lot of issues about what, how do we manage this stuff? How do we manage this information? How do we manage the, the virtual creations of ourselves? Can you tell us a little bit about the, just the state of metaverse governance? Sure. Uh, the, the state of metaverse governance is uh, unwell. that. Uh, I'm on the steering committee for metaverse governance at the World Economic Forum. And there's a couple of things that in my discussions with the leaders of companies and the leaders of, of governments, it, it becomes very clear. One is that when people think about metaverse governance, they are not thinking about it as a whole ecosystem. And by that, I mean, there's there are different risk factors that come out of VR and AR, for example. Uh, some of the, the programs that are, are coming out of AR, someone showed me one and I thought it was the most adorable real-time lo- real location tracking device I'd ever seen. <laughs> when I told them that's what they'd built, they were, they were horrified. So AR has m- more immediate offline implications than, than VR might. Second, I think most people think about XR as social VR, and that's just one type of it. The first largest metaverse is Altspace. But the second largest is actually run by Accenture on a Microsoft Mesh platform. And 750,000 people go to work every day in the metaverse. There's a very different kind of governance that you'll have in a workspace environment than you will in a social chat-based environment, then you will using XR to do physical therapy instead of trekking your way to the hospital during a pandemic. 
I'm a Facebook hipster. I then deleted my Facebook account and then re-upped it in 2005 and have not been able to get off the stupid thing since. So so why can't you get off? So what, what are your... <laughs> you guys... The award-winning Smashing Security Podcast, hosted by Graham Cluley and Carol Terrio each week. It takes an irreverent look at cybersecurity and online privacy, helping you find out what's happening with your data. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps, or at smashingsecurity.com. It's not all filth. Yeah, and so I, I mean, there's all sorts of issues with AR. I think the the one that we touched on was bystander consent, mm-hmm. uh, and this is something I'm really interested in because it seems like that the flagship use for augmented reality glasses is the automatic translation mm-hmm. of people speaking in different languages, but it doesn't necessarily. There's no consent that's that's uh, accepted at any point between the person you're talking to and then the people around you. And I, I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. One of the things that I think is very, very interesting uh, is trying to get civil society and government to understand the technical limitations on bystander consent. And by that, I mean, pretend you have 100 points. And this is how I describe it to some digital rights nonprofits. Tell me how you would like to change a pair of glasses to do better bystander consent. And we go through the exercises and they tell me what they want. And if they want a brighter light, I say, that's great, up to a certain point. If you go above this threshold um, for brightness, your camera doesn't work. Do you still want to proceed? And they say, oh, no, well, we got we to gotta fix that. Um, so it's thinking about the, the technical trade-offs. If they want to make better notification, that means that the battery is going to last maybe six minutes maybe 10 minutes. So you have to think about the limited resources in engineering wise in these devices so that you can create user notification mechanisms in a way that is both smart, effective, and sustainable. And tell me a little bit about disabled rights as it relates to XR, AR, VR. We talked a little bit about how uh, it's mostly white guys that are developing these these tools and the hardware and technology, but that that's leaving out the majority of people on this planet. It is. I, I have a piece that I, I put out in the information, and it's called um, "Why XR is Failing the People Who Could um, Who Could Use It Most," and I, I talk about how one in seven people on the planet are disabled. And there are apparent and non-apparent disabilities. And disability is unique in human rights law because it's a status that we can move in and out of throughout our lives for most people. If you are not in a wheelchair full time, but you hurt your leg and you're on crutches or temporarily in a wheelchair, you, you get a taste of what it's like to have challenges with your mobility. I, I write about how people in, with disabled status tend to be some of the earliest adopters of this hardware but they're the last people that it's designed for. And that's that's actually a, a real shame for companies because if when they think about total addressable market, they're, they're really missing out. 
So it's, it's, yeah. it's not just a human rights issue. It's a smart business issue. Uh, the piece also talks about how um, religious and ethnic minorities and women are, are also, or they don't benefit from the current hardware design. And by that, I mean, um, I interviewed a man who is a Sikh and he talked about, he's a professional VR developer out of the UK. And he talked about how with the new professional edition of the headset that he uses, he can either choose to hear or to see. But because there's not an adjustable strap, he can't get it over his turban. And so he can't work unless he decides to give up his religious signifiers and cultural uh, headgear. Women, on average, have a smaller interpupillary distance, so the distance between your pupils, um, than the average headset. This is important because interpupillary distance, if you've ever gone to the optometrist, they measure it because it's very important for determining your prescription for glasses. The reason that women experience more simulation sickness isn't because women don't play video games, isn't because women just get more nauseous, uh, isn't it's it's because it's the way that these headsets are designed right now. It's like putting half of the population in the wrong prescription glasses. Right. I mean, what, what do you think that's that's attributed to? Like, what what do you think causes them to just overlook everybody? Is it just is it ignorance, or is it just you know they're trying to cater to one specific group over everybody else? I think it's a lack of diversity in the engineering teams because it's. I am a, I am a very petite female and it's, it's very obvious to me when I put on a headset and it, it, it and it makes, it doesn't fit my face. So you, you need people throughout the engineering pipeline who see the world through different vantage points to let you know what is obvious to them that is being overlooked. Absolutely. Oh, another example of that is there was a researcher from MIT who went to Africa to do her dissertation research about women and economic engagement. And, and was, she was using Oculus Go. 50% of the time when she put the headset on her test subjects, the strap snapped 50% wow. of the time. And that is something that really should be clear in the design process. So you think about design justice how it fits with human rights and how both of those intersect with digital rights. And that's where I think we need to get to. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you one more question just on the metaverse front. Uh, when we talk about Roblox, you know, this is something that, you know, I've seen my nieces play with and I know it's, it's very popular um, with kids, but there seems to be, like a, I sound like a tinfoil hat person saying this, but uh, there seems to be like this crossover of, terrorism and extremism in the metaverse, right? Like using things like robots to recruit people. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. That's not a new technique. We've seen um, with online extremism for many, many years, people using video games as a vector to reach out and try to recruit people. When people are recruited into an ideology like that, they're not being offered an ideology based on terrorism, what they are being offered is a community. So I, I have worked with a lot of people who are called formers, so former white supremacists, former extremists, and they talk about how people reached out to them because they were looking for a place to belong. So when you ask them to recant later on, 
it's it's not like asking them to give up views they don't intellectually believe with. It's asking them to leave friends and family behind. And that's why it that's why it's sticky. And you can see in a gaming environment where you attract people of all kinds, that's standing out as kind of a lone wolf or somebody without a strong community base, you can befriend people that way. So that's that's the vector that it kind of that's how it kind of works. This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask, has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. In terms of metaverse governance, what do you think in the near term, what the what the solution might be to cover? I mean, there's so many different, just in 15 minutes, we, we identify <laughs> like all, all these different things. But like in terms of managing it, what do you think the solutions might be in the near term? In the near term, um, I, I have an infant daughter, but if I had an older child, I would make going into the metaverse kind of a family activity. And by that, I mean, there's the ability to cast what your child sees onto a screen. I would do that behind them so you could see what they see. And I would also make it so that the headset becomes a tool and not a toy, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. I like that approach. Um, yeah, I really like that. Uh, let me, well, let me switch gears just a little bit because I'm, I'm just watching our time. Um, you were at a conference discussing an issue involving a Wi-Fi sex toy uh, and how there's no jurisdiction right now to prosecute someone for hacking into it. Could, could you just tell us a bit about that? Now for something completely different. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, the discussion came from the... Um, the existing law and extended reality conference and Amy Stefanovich, who's a VP of us policy at the future for privacy forum was talking about work that she had done where, you know, sex toys were found to not have under, under existing law. Um, you wouldn't be able to make a case that somebody had assaulted you if they were to, um, hack into your device and turn it on without your consent or, um, you wouldn't be able to say that it was an actual assault because assaults required a physical person to physically touch you. That's the way that we saw cyber harassment laws working at first. And in many states, uh, it's still this way where someone will just add cyber to an existing statute and it creates kind of perverse outcomes, all ones intended. And so is there a... What should if something if someone were to find themselves in a situation like what what can they do about that? Oh, um, a situation where where they feel like they're caught in a legal gap. Yeah, like you want to you want to be able to take action, but you but there doesn't seem to be a, a, a statute or something that you can lean on to to do so. That is a situation where I I feel bad for the people involved because there there may not be a means to hold somebody legally accountable. You may not be able to involve law enforcement, but I would definitely call your elected representative and say, hey, you're supposed to like write laws. Here, here's a situation right. where the law doesn't work. Um, that, 
that's why I, that's why I have a job. I, I advise a lot of companies on legal holes. I do a lot of academic writing and teaching about the holes that emerge, but it's it's really impossible to come up with them all. It's it's gotta be frustrating too, I imagine, because it, it just seems like you know, I, we talked about this when we when we did the uh, our pre interview. You know, when you look at the questions that our congressional representatives were asking Mark Zuckerberg, like at the at the level that they were asking those mm-hmm. questions versus the problems that, that we need to face, uh, there's a significant gap there. Correct. Um, so I think letting, letting your representatives know that you're actually interested in making sure laws about the metaverse are, are in a tune with other types of laws or training for your local police department, because that's, I'm a former prosecutor and that's the interface that most people will have. And you, and it sucks when you go to the police and, and, and they say, I'm sorry, we're not trained in that. We don't deal with that or just turn off your screen. Yeah. This is something that I've, um, cause we've been doing the privacy audit since the, the show began. And this is something that's come up a lot with the police just kind of saying, to ignore it or to you know, block that person or turn off your computer. Um, there seems to be a lack of training when it comes to things like this. How do we fix that? Is it just better funding, better funding and better training for them? Better funding and better training and also interfacing between federal authorities and state authorities. And that sounds, that sounds very odd, but I was a federal prosecutor, prosecutor and what they called the CHIP the computer hacking and IP specialist for human rights and special prosecutions. And that meant I became an, an expert on electronic evidence and prosecuting uh, cybercrime as it related to human rights. And I have to say, there were a lot of resources that the FBI had that it, it, awareness it just wasn't out there to local departments. Also, Many, many cyber crimes get misfiled when you go to the local police departments and they'll put, uh, they'll put cyber harassment and other things like that down as domestic violence. And it, it's not a clear fit because the statutes often require physical contact between the, um, a perpetrator and, and a victim. And people will go through the stack and just say, I, I don't know what to do with this. So better training in the areas where people will be most impacted by cybercrime would be helpful. Um, let me ask you a little bit about what what should someone do, given given that the police aren't quite where we want them to be. Um, what should someone do if they if they find themselves in a situation where they're being stalked and harassed? Like, what are the steps that they can take? One is keep a record. So whenever you, you you get some concerning or strange contact, keep a log of who contacted you, um, you think, screen names, etc., when it happened and what the content was. Because then you can establish a pattern and practice of this behavior. So it's, it would be harder for police to say, oh, you know, it's, it's just a one-off thing. Second, I think you can let friends and family know what's going on so that they can they can be aware and help you and oftentimes people will get your information through social engineering meaning they will ask people close to you questions and information that seems innocuous but that they can can use to either locate you or torment you and third is going and googling yourself 
create a Google alert so you can see what type of information is out there in the public realm. And if you've never done that, it's very illuminating. You also can go to information aggregators, things like um, Spokio, um, that, that collect information from all over the web. They will scrape information from public records, from social media, from internet websites, and put it all together so people can buy that for 1995. A, a good way to reduce incidences of harassment or identity theft or things like that is to go and remove yourself from those databases. And it takes a little bit of legwork, but it it's very effective. Yeah, we uh, we've been recommending people use just delete me. Yes, um, just just because there's 600 data brokers, you know, like there's so many of them um, that I, we we did the math. It would take like a solid month, right? Like if that was your full time job <laughs> to to get through them, um, which is crazy to me that that there's no uh, there's no just easy opt out unless you live in California or Virginia right now. Well, the good news is there are other comprehensive state privacy laws coming. Colorado is a place to watch. So is Texas. And I believe there's six other bills coming up in the next year. Oh, that's terrific to hear. Um, You just made my day. (laughs) Um, That is very rare that somebody says that to me, given my line of work. (laughs) Well, you've you've made mine. And I think you've made everyone's day listening to us because, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, our frustration of just having California. And I think people don't really realize that Virginia also has like a similar law. Yes. Um, but there's only two of them. So I think knowing that more is coming, mm-hmm. I think is, is terrific. Um, and if you look oh, at the biometrics realm, Illinois is the leader in that. Oh, really? Oh, that, yes, I did not so know that. The Illinois state laws is the best for biometric privacy. So uh, other states have been looking at that and copying it as well. Oh, that's great. Um, we, I've managed to cram everything into 25 minutes. I was worried that I wasn't going to. Um, so let me, let me ask you real quick. What, what is something that you don't usually get asked in interviews like this that you would love to touch on? Oh, gosh. Why I work with extended reality. Yeah, I'd love to know. Many people talk about, they're like, you, you had a great career as an international criminal prosecutor. Why are you playing with virtual reality? Isn't it a toy? And um, I, I never get to talk about why I love it. I I just, I think it's the closest thing to magic we have. And, and to me, it's really a tool that augments human potential. Yeah. And I'm, oh, I like I'm very hopeful that the next phase of spatial computing is going to bring new art and new ways to connect with people all over the world and better education and new forms of civic participation. And, and that's why I do what I do because I, I call myself a tempered optimist and I, I'm at heart hopeful. I like that. I mean, for me, I always see it as, you know, we have a loneliness epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I, I see VR, if we can just, if we can just get it right um, as a potential cure for that. I have hope. Well, this this was terrific. I I really appreciate you taking the time because I and I was I'm glad that we got everything covered. <laughs> Me too. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Tired of being tracked online? DuckDuckGo can help. Tracking is a comprehensive program. Trackers lurk nearly everywhere online from websites, emails, and even apps in your phone. That means you need a multi pronged solution. 
DuckDuckGo's all-in-one privacy app can be used as an everyday browser with private search, tracking, blocking, encryption, and now email protection built in. It's the free, easy button for online privacy. Download the app today. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Thank you for listening to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weiwo.tv special report. I'm your host, Rosie Tran. Today's episode was written by BJ Mendelson, produced by Andrew Van Voris, and sponsored by DuckDuckGo. Due to the overwhelming demand for privacy audits, we want to make a quick announcement before we go. Doing one-on-one privacy audits is super time-consuming. This means BJ has less time to write these episodes and the new book, How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So... Along with his co-author, Amanda King, BJ is currently putting together an online course called Stupid Sexy Privacy, which you'll be able to purchase here at stupidsexyprivacy.com. The course will walk you through every privacy tactic discussed in today's episode in greater detail. If you'd like to know when the course becomes available, you can email BJ at bjmendelson at duck.com. The email address again is bjmendelson at duck.com. And we'll see you next time, right? <laughs>